All right. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the crowd. And uh, I, I got to say, sitting in the back and watching everybody file in, I couldn't help but notice the number of new dads in the crowd. Uh, man, what a blessing it is to be in a church that's growing in many ways, uh, but especially as we, uh, we take on the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply, and, and uh, that's such a blessing. Um, like Josh said, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Brett Allison. I'm just one of the regular members here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, and as Josh said, our, our regular pastor is in the States right now on a well-deserved sabbatical. Uh, so if this is your, your first time checking us out, I just uh, apologize up front. Uh, this is not polished preaching. Um, and I encourage you to, to try us again when someone more qualifies up here. Um, hopefully the hospitality that you received as you came in the door is enough to make you want to come back because uh, I know we have some, some wonderful fo uh, folks in this congregation. So... Um, if you would, uh, please turn with me to Matthew 1, and we'll read verses 18 through 24. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand. We got the ushers in the back will help provide some. All right, and if you would, stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks and praise for the privilege of serving and worshiping you. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word. May your Holy Spirit fill us and guide us so that we may know you more fully. Amen. Hey, before you take a seat, just take a moment and uh, greet somebody around you, meet someone you haven't uh, met before. Well, if you are already confused why I, a person of zero theological training and preaching background, might be up here, I'm sure you're even more confused after having read that passage, uh, a passage of scripture that we typically reserve for Christmas, but uh, maybe this story will help shed some light on both points of confusion. So several years ago, I woke up on Father's Day and I, I turned to my wife, Kim, sitting here, and uh, I said to her that I didn't want to go to church. She just kind of looked at me funny and she was like, why not, right? I told her that every year it's the same thing, right? On Mother's Day, we do a great job of honoring the mothers. You know, we... <laughs> we we let them know how important they are, right? We, we let them know how much we cherish them and the role that they play in our lives. And the typical sermon might include uh, a mention about Lois and Eunice or other mothers in the Bible whose faith uh, played an important role in their families' lives, right? Then comes Father's Day. Men are reminded how they're not doing their jobs, right? <laughs> Maybe we'll use some scripture to show them uh, the standard and remind them where they're falling short. Uh, highlighting the societal trends of men walking out on their families and putting their careers first. Many of the preachers I've heard over the years would try to end on a high note, 
maybe reminding us that when our earthly father fails, we still have that perfect dad in our heavenly father. And I couldn't understand how all of these preachers were missing it, right? Sure, earthly fathers are uh, imperfect, and God knows that. Everybody knows that. Certainly my children know that. But in spite of that fact, God felt that earthly fathers were so important that he selected one for his own son. I couldn't understand why we never talked about Joseph. I, I always thought Father's Day was the perfect opportunity to do that. So when I told my wife how I felt about Father's Day, she just laughed at me and said I was being silly. So, of course, she made me go to church. (laughs) As we walked out of church that uh, afternoon, she said, okay, if you don't want to go to church on Father's Day anymore, we don't have to. I tell you, the sermon we heard was almost exactly what I predicted it would be. That was the last time I went to church on Father's Day until today. So that story probably shed a little light on my choice of scripture, but you're still wondering why I'm up here, especially if Father's Day is my skip day. Well, I told that story here at Men's Bible Study on a Saturday morning, and Pastor Rick was with us. Uh, The next morning, he asked me if I would expand upon that lesson and fill in for him on Father's Day. (laughs) So... The the lesson there is don't ever let Pastor Rick know your skip day. All right. Well, I guess I have to put up or shut up. I always try to tell my children and, and, and my Marines that issues aren't corrected by quitting. And when given the opportunity, you should probably do something about it. So today I want to break from the norm a little. And to all the dads out there, as Hans and Franz used to say, I'm here to pump you up. Yeah, we got some who know that. That's awesome. All right, for the non-dads out there, please don't check out on me. I think you'll find some useful nuggets in here too. Uh, You don't need to have biological children to be a dad to someone, and I would point to Paul's relationship with Timothy as an example of an earthly dad with spiritual children. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he calls Timothy, my genuine child in the faith. I pray that we all have opportunities to pour ourselves into children of faith. But Paul is not who I'd like to talk about today. I want to focus our time and attention looking at Joseph. I want to take a look at why God felt it was important that his son had an earthly father from a practical standpoint. Then we'll examine what kind of father God was looking for to help raise his son and how Joseph may have fit that role. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with a few things that we can all get excited about. But before we talk about Joseph's role as an earthly father, we must first understand why Jesus Christ had to come as a child that would need a father. It's interesting to think that the God who created the universe could have chosen to send his son in any manner he chose. I mean, why not have him descend miraculously to earth from the clouds in a manner that would leave no doubt who he was? Well, I think there are several explanations for this. First, the fulfillment of prophecy. In the passage we read, Matthew tells us that Christ's virgin birth took place to fulfill the prophecy found in Isaiah 7.14, which says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The Jews of Christ's time looked back to these prophecies and were expecting a Messiah, but they were looking for a man who would be their political savior and throw off the shackles of Roman rule. Christ came in the flesh to fulfill those messianic prophecies, but not to throw off Israel's shackles of Rome, but to throw off all of our shackles from sin. Second, I believe Christ came as an incarnate child to reveal God to us and to demonstrate what a righteous life looks like. A quick word search using Bible.com pulled up no less than 23 verses from the Old Testament that directly referred to how we are to care for foreigners, orphans, and widows. These verses span from Deuteronomy to the very last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Why did God give foreigners, orphans, and widows so much attention? Because they were the oppressed and the needy, the outcasts who were often neglected by the world. God wanted his people to focus on caring for others and to teach them about his love. Instead, the Israelites focused on rules, laws, and religion. Does that sound familiar? I think we sometimes get focused on those things today. Throughout his life, Christ taught and demonstrated how a man is to be righteous by loving others first. When his followers still didn't get it, he washed their feet and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should go and do just as I have done to you. In the same setting, Christ gave his disciples a new commandment, to love one another as he loved them, so that all people will know they are his disciples. So Christ came as a man to fulfill prophecy, and then to demonstrate what a righteous life looks like. And third, he came as a man to bring us salvation. I believe Christ had to come as an incarnate child for our salvation. Because of our sinful nature, God had provided instructions to the Israelites on how to cleanse themselves and make themselves right before him. Jewish scholars identified 613 rules for Jews to follow in the Torah. 613, that's a lot. Not all dealt directly with sin, but can you imagine how difficult it was to remain righteous before God if you had to follow 613 rules? These sacrifices and rituals were all temporary and really didn't meet God's standard. A little side story to help demonstrate my point. One of the things that I love about living in Okinawa is the opportunity to travel. Now, some of it's pleasure, some of it's for work. Not too long ago, I went to Korea for work and had a little time to kill, so I did some sightseeing. When I went to catch a bus in between stops, I nearly got thrown off by the driver. I hadn't paid attention and mixed some of my Japanese yen in with my Korean won. I'm sure uh, there's a, some of you can probably relate to that. So as he was berating me, a, uh, a nice lady who spoke English came to my rescue and, and straightened out my coin situation. So I was giving the driver all the right currency. You see, our salvation has to be in the right currency. 
goats, doves, grain offerings, or even cold hard cash cannot take the place of a human life. Christ came in the flesh to buy our salvation for us using the right currency. And now we can all get on the bus. So Christ gave up his divine privileges, emptying himself to be human in order to fulfill prophecy, provide us an example of how to live a righteous life, and to atone for our sins so we are perfect before God. Now I apologize, that's a a mini sermon within a larger sermon, but it's important to understand the context of why Jesus came to earth as a baby, to live both fully as man and God, instead of just riding in on a chariot from the sky, right? Otherwise, a discussion about Joseph is pointless. Okay, that's enough talk about fundamentals of Christianity, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about what's really important on Father's Day, and that's dads. As I mentioned, I have always wondered why no one takes the opportunity on Father's Day to point out that earthly dads are so important to God that he appointed one for his own son. In today's society that is constantly trying to redefine family, it is easy to lose sight of the important roles God gave earthly fathers. Going back to my second point on Jesus' incarnate nature, I believe that if he came to show us what a truly righteous life looked like, then his experiences would need to be fully human as ours are. This includes requiring all the basic necessities that a father provides practically and spiritually. You see, God has a special charge for earthly fathers, and I think we see that portrayed in Joseph's life. First, us dads are to provide for our families physically, and God needed someone to provide for both Mary and Jesus' physical needs. In a patriarchal society, it would have been difficult for a single mother to provide for a child. We read countless verses throughout scripture that reiterate God's charge to his people to look after the orphan and the widow because they do not have a provider. Another way we provide for our family's physical needs is by providing security. We read a specific charge to Joseph in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15, when God's angel instructs him, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Dads, don't ever forget or take for granted the importance of the physical provision and protection you provide. The simple act of just guiding a child across the street by holding its hand has more emotional impact than you can imagine, as that child not only feels the safety you provide, but also the love and the compassion that are found in your hands. Second, fathers are to meet their children's intellectual needs. In biblical times, this looked like teaching them a trade. And Jesus met his first disciples, two different sets of brothers. They were out fishing. This was their family trade. You see, all Jewish boys were trained in the Torah, but only a select few were chosen by rabbis to continue their training beyond adolescence. Those who were not selected to continue their training would earn a living by learning their father's trade. In Mark's account of Jesus preaching in his hometown, there are quotes from the crowd that say, isn't this the carpenter? And then Matthew's account quotes the crowd as saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? So it seems like they're saying two different things. Is this the carpenter or is this his son? I would say both are correct, right? 
it would have been expected that Joseph taught Jesus his trade. Now, as a Marine, I don't think I have a, a trade per se that I teach my children, although I do have uh, one that is, has followed in my footsteps. But I do have the privilege of helping with homework, uh, even for my college-age kids. And I have enjoyed uh, many times when I had a garage in the past, uh, when I got to work on a project or tinker on a car and uh, had one of the kids join me. I, I got to tell you, you know, dads, don't ever pass up the opportunity. Just have a, a child come alongside you and show them what you're doing, right? Sometimes I think we get bogged down and think that we're too busy to take that moment and teach them something. You might find that they're actually interested in what you do. Third, God expects earthly fathers to meet their children's spiritual needs. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Later in Deuteronomy, it says, in 11 verses 18 through 21, it says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I can imagine Joseph taking young Jesus to work with him maybe taking and talking about God's laws, perhaps even quizzing him on the Torah, or just praising him for the uh, beauty of the day and the land around him. Now, we don't have to be experts in the Bible to teach our children about God's love and glory. Our lives are filled with personal examples of the mercy he has shown us. We can also look around and see his glory and the beauty that surrounds us. God will provide the lessons to teach our children if we just learn to live with our eyes wide open. A wonderful example of someone who lived with his, wide, his eyes wide open to see God's lessons is a missionary I once met uh, in Honduras. Uh, I'd taken a, a short-term missions trip with a church that we were at in North Carolina. And uh, it was July. We we're uh, working in the, the mountains of Honduras. So uh, if you're not familiar with Honduras, co close to the equator, um, very much like Okinawa in the summer, very hot, very humid. And we were driving up in the, into the, the mountains, and uh, the car in front of us, or the truck in front of us, had some members of our team some, uh, in the back of the truck. And they threw a handful of hard candy at our car, and it landed on the windshield. So the missionary reached out, and he pulled a piece off the windshield and popped it in his mouth. And then he just began to praise God and remind us of God's goodness. It was interesting. He gave us a sermon there on the spot about candy, right? Could have never imagined it. But in that moment, he told us his mouth was getting dry and he was beginning to thirst. And so God had met his, his need in a very small way just by providing a piece of candy to moisten his mouth and to boost his sugar level. He used that small opportunity to teach us that God was ever-present, providing for us, and that his love could be seen in the simplest of life's moments. I encourage all of us to keep our eyes open for those simple, teachable moments that we can use to share God's love and glory with others and with our children. Okay, so where are we? We start out looking at a few reasons why it was important that Jesus came fully as a human being, fulfilling prophecy, setting the example of what living a righteous life looks like, and providing a sacrifice and the right currency for our salvation. And because he came fully as human, we said, God needed to appoint an earthly father for Jesus in order to meet some of his most basic needs physically, intellectually, and spiritually. 
Now we'll examine the life of Joseph and look at what kind of man God selected to be the earthly father for his son. We'll take a look at the basics of who he was and then we'll take an, an exam, we'll take and examine his character. So there are very few passages of scripture that actually talk about Joseph, uh, but from one, the ones that we have, we can piece together some basic facts. First, we know that he is a descendant of David. It was mentioned in the passage that we read. Uh, both Matthew 1 and Luke 3 link the genealogies of Joseph back to David. And then furthermore, in Luke 2, verses 1 through 4, it tells us that Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to re register for the census because he was the house and lineage of David. That brings up the second fact about Joseph. He was from Nazareth. So what kind of place was Nazareth? In John 1, verse 46, Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He said that when Philip tells him that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the one foretold by the prophets. That seems like a pretty harsh statement about someone's hometown. But as a Jew, Nathaniel probably recognized Jerusalem as the hub of rabbinical thought and teaching and questioned how someone who came out of Nazareth could rise to prominence and develop a following. You see, Nazareth was located in the hills. Do we have that picture? Yeah, there we go. Uh, Nazareth was located in the hills, kind of nestled down in a bit of a bowl. None of the main roads ran through Nazareth. And as one commentary put it, if one had to want, one had to, want to go to Nazareth in order to find it. So Nazareth was a bit out in the sticks, unlike the hub that Jerusalem was. So it would be surprising that a prominent teacher would rise out of it. And speaking of sticks, it actually had very few trees at all. And you can see the, the picture that I had uh, pulled off the internet. Um, but it has very trees surrounding it. It looks like a lot of rock. This reminds me more of like Yuma or 29 Palms, right? And, uh, and that brings up a third interesting point about Joseph, which is his occupation. We already mentioned that Joseph was a carpenter, but how can a carpenter make a living in a place with very little wood like this, right? Well, the Greek word used in the passage would have actually been tekton, which is a craftsman of many different textiles. Could be wood, could be stone. Additionally, approximately three miles from Nazareth was the town of Zippori, which was known as the Jewel of the Galilee at the time. It was a Herodian improvement project and between Nazareth and Zippori was one of Herod's quarries, which would have been used to procure the resources for the projects in Zippori. So there's a very good chance that Joseph worked with stone materials, perhaps even worked in the quarry itself, which means there is a very good chance that Jesus worked with stone. Isn't scripture beautiful the way it can weave a tapestry in so many ways? Doesn't the idea of Jesus Christ working with stone bring so much more meaning to what was said both about him and by him? Think about what it meant to Simon when Jesus, a stonecutter, renamed him Peter or Rock and later tells Peter that he will be the rock upon which he builds his church. Or consider the scriptures that describe Jesus as the eternal rock, our rock and mighty fortress, our rock and salvation, and the stone which the builders rejected but is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. All right, back to Joseph. We've identified that he was a descendant of David, lived in Nazareth, and he was a textile worker. 
But what kind of man was he? What was his character like? Let's look again at the text we read together in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Some of that language uh, may sound a little bit confusing to us as Westerners, and there are a few things that we need to understand in terms of cultural context. First, it might seem odd to us that Joseph would divorce a woman that he was only engaged to. See, in Jewish culture, marriages were arranged by the parents. The engagement period began once dowries were agreed upon by those parents. That dowry was essentially a legal contract binding the two together. As a quick aside, uh, this brings up another fun fact on the beauty of scripture. During the engagement period, the groom would go back to his father's house where he was to build an addition on his father's house in which he would later bring his bride to live. During that engagement period, the bride waited separately for her groom to return and did not see him. He would return only once the work was complete. And it was up to the groom's father, not the groom, to decide when that work was complete. Doesn't that paint a more vivid picture with Jesus' words when he tells his followers that he's going to prepare a room for us in his father's house and that only the father knows the hour when Jesus will return for his bride? I just love the way that uh, scripture ties so much together and, and brings in uh, a more vivid picture when we understand the context. So the second thing that we should understand culturally about this engagement period is that because they were in a legal marriage contract, the punishment for Mary, if she had been adulterous, would be death. And even divorce, a lesser sentence than death, would mean that she would be an outcast from society. Jewish law prevented a divorced woman from remarrying, which largely stripped her of her means of provision and of patriarchal society. So we first encounter what kind of man Joseph was in verse 19 where it says he was a just man. So what does it mean to be just? In the case of what seemed like Mary's infidelity, Joseph had every right under the law to have Mary punished. But God doesn't want blind obedience to law. He wants love and mercy. Hosea 6 verse 6 says, I desire steadfast love not sacrifice. I find it fascinating that when Matthew records Jesus quoting this passage, he quotes him as saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You find that in both Matthew 9, verse 13 and 12, verse 7. Hosea finishes his verse by stating that God desires us to know him more than he wants our offerings. So dads, let's be encouraged by Joseph's example. What does mercy look like to us? How can we model it for our kids? So I know in my early days of parenting, I felt I was bound to a set of rules that I had to follow, a parenting code, if you will, that required me to swiftly discipline any and all infractions. Perhaps it was maturity, uh, probably it was a byproduct of getting worn down, but I think my younger two, David and Sarah, fared much better than my older two, Josh and Grace, as I slowly learned that discipline and mercy 
were two sides of the same justice coin. Being just doesn't mean we jump to discipline at every infraction of God's commands. Being a just father means we hold our children accountable to God's standards while also demonstrating his love and his mercy to them. So the first thing we observe about Joseph's character was that he was a just man demonstrating mercy. The next attribute of Joseph's character goes hand in hand with being just, and that is patience. If you continue in Matthew 1, verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, undoubtedly heartbroken by the news of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph did not rush to a decision. Instead, he took time to contemplate what he should do. I imagine it included some fasting and some praying too. As a father and a husband, patience is certainly an area that I struggle in. But I like the, the way the New Living Translation uh, phrases Ephesians 4 verse 2. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. What great advice for anybody, but especially us dads. Going back to our discussion on mercy and discipline as two sides of the same justice coin, patience certainly enables us to make more just decisions. As I mentioned, I think my younger two got off a little easier than my older two. It took until my oldest Josh was well into high school before I understood the importance of being patient and taking the time to understand motives. I often assumed motive based on action. My heart was in the right place. I wanted to teach them to follow God's will, but I could not truly do that without understanding their motivation. Patience and justice demand that we take the time to understand the core of the matter. Then we can provide better, better discipline, which is the training we provide them to help them understand God's heart. So Joseph was, not, was just, Joseph was patient, and next we read that Joseph was obedient. In Matthew 1, verse 24, it says, when, Jesus, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. You see, these verses on obedience really begin to demonstrate the practical importance of Joseph's role as an earthly father. Going back to the fatherly rules that we discussed early, earlier, Joseph fulfills his obligations to meet his family's physical and spiritual needs through obedience to God. First, in our passage from Matthew 1, it was extremely important to both Mary and Jesus' future that Joseph did not abandon them. As mentioned, Mary would have been an outcast of society with no husband to provide for her, and Jesus would have been the equivalent of an orphan with no father. Joseph's obedience to God ensured that Mary and Joseph's, uh, Jesus' physical needs were met. Joseph's obedience to God meant he provided for his family's spiritual needs as well. We see this in Luke 2, verses 22 through 23, which says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And if we skip down to verse 39, it says, When they had performed these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. Later in verses 41 through 42, we read that Joseph was obedient in ensuring his family observed the feast of the Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. 
So these passages demonstrate Joseph's obedience to God by leading his family spiritually and following Jewish law. While we only catch glimpses of these uh, two small instances, I think it's safe to assume that Joseph, like many Jews of the first century, probably was faithful in teaching his children God's word on a daily basis. So dads, what is God calling you to be obedient in? Are we taking the time to slow down and be quiet, to listen to what God is saying and then to follow his lead? In a lot of ways, I think Joseph's story resonates with many of us. Just like Joseph was given PCS orders to a distant country, many of the families here today find themselves in the same situation. Just as Joseph continued to lead his family spiritually through several PCS cycles, he went through Nazareth to Bethlehem, then to Egypt and back to Nazareth, dads, we're called to be obedient and lead our family spiritually through each PCS move as well. I just want to commend you all for being here today. That's really step one, right? Bringing your family here to worship is following God and being obedient through another PCS move. So thank you for, uh, for coming out today. Through Joseph, we see that God wanted an earthly father who was just, who was patient, and obedient to help raise his son, Jesus. Now, Mindset is not to build Joseph up as some super dad. While I want to acknowledge some of the attributes that God expects of us earthly fathers, Joseph's story also demonstrates that he and we are less than perfect. If we went further into the story found in Luke 2, verses 41 through 52, where Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, we learn that they lost accountability and they left Jesus at the temple. Now, As a father, I can totally relate to that aspect of the story, right? There may have been a store or an amusement park or two uh, where we came up a short, a David or a Grace, as we did a quick head count on the way to the car. But uh, we'll chalk that up as just one of many of my parenting failures over the years. Now, you're probably beginning to think that this is going to sound like all the other Father's Day sermons that I complained about. The ones that remind us we're not perfect, but God is. I'm gonna change it up a little bit. I wanna give you a different ending, perhaps a better ending. And this isn't just for the dads in the room, it's a better ending for all of us. You see, when the Heavenly Father sent his son Jesus to us, he was actually showing himself to us. In John 14, eight through 10, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be content. Jesus replied, have I been with you for so long and you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. See, Christ gave dads and all of us the blueprints how to love like the Heavenly Father. In his life, Christ reflected God's love for us and taught us how we are to love our children. But it gets even better. When we feel inadequate, when we fall short of Christ's example, and when we wonder how we'll ever live up to our Heavenly Father's standards, Christ tells us that he is going to send us his Holy Spirit to help us. Before his crucifixion in John 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And in verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, in his life, Christ gave us an example to follow of how we can love like the Father. In his death, Christ gave us his Holy Spirit so we can actually do it. Another example in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul's tell, Paul tells us, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. You see, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He expects us to let him perfect us. I think it's beautiful and, and really summarized in Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 16. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after all those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So fellow dads, let's be encouraged this Father's Day. We're given a fantastic opportunity to model God's love to our children through justice, patience, and obedience. And during those times, when it seems like an impossible task, we can be reassured that God's Holy Spirit is at work within us, sanctifying us and perfecting us, ready to show us the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible opportunities you provide to us to pour your love into the lives of others. For those here who may not know you, I pray you would open their hearts to Jesus, allowing him to fill them with your Holy Spirit Teach us justice and patience. Help us to listen in obedience when your Holy Spirit stirs our hearts. Amen. Happy Father's Day.